Before we start this week's episode, I want to share some very exciting news. The podcast is now officially a part of the Belly Up Sports Podcasting Network. So in addition to listening to the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, you can now also follow the show on Belly Up Sports. Uh, very excited for this partnership and growing the show even more. Hi, this is Kenny Albert. You're listening to the Broadway Hat Podcast with your host, Kyle Hall, the number one podcast for all things Rangers hockey. Welcome back to the Broadway Hat Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Hall. The Rangers had an up and down week this last week. We're recording this Saturday night following an OT loss, the Penguins 5-4 at MSG. The Rangers currently still sit in the cellar of the New East Division. Uh, looking back at this week, they played a two-game series against the Buffalo Sabres up in Buffalo. Tuesday night, the Rangers lose 3-2. to The really only highlight from that game was the first NHL goal scored by Keandre Miller. Miller has exceeded all Ranger fans and probably the coaching staff's expectation with his great play this year. Previously against the Penguins weekend before, he held his own against Sidney Crosby. And this last week, he had a very, very good week. He scored a goal in the Tuesday night game, and then he's had he had an assist in the Penguins series, and he's had three more assists. Uh, he had two assists last uh, today, or tonight, we're recording this again Saturday night, following the Penguins' loss. So he had two assists in the Penguins' loss on Saturday. He continues to just be excellent in both his own zone and the offensive zone. He's clearly in the top four for the Rangers right now. He's actually leading the team with a plus seven, plus minus rating. I think the next guy is plus three, so by a large margin. He's now being trusted on the uh, penalty kill. He's out there in overtime on three on three, you know, getting important shifts, playing the last minute of games. So you can see the trust that the coaching staff has in him, and he's really delivered. He's been fantastic. Uh, looking at Tuesday's game, the Rangers had a 2-1 to one lead going into the second period, and they got completely dominated from the second period on. The Sabres scored two goals in the second to take a 3-2 lead, and then basically just clamped down the Rangers the rest of the game, and they couldn't get anything going. One of the reasons why the Rangers could not get anything going was they lost 70% of faceoffs. Now, this has been a problem all year long, and it continued again in Saturday night's loss, but the Rangers have to fix this issue. I don't know how much longer this team can go without addressing this problem. And Philip Heedle is now out four to six weeks after being injured in the last Penguins game on Sunday night, last Sunday night. So you're already short at center. The depth was not great to come into the year. And now probably the best center that was playing, Heedle was the hottest center you had before he got hurt. You know, fortunately, Ryan Strom has come on recently. Strom finally looks like uh, Ryan Strom of last year. He's finally waking up. In his last four games, he's got two goals and an assist. He looks a lot better, a lot more comfortable out in the ice. I think his his new line of Panarin, well, actually Blackwell is playing on the line tonight, but I think when Buchnevich was dropped onto that line and had Buch and Panarin, that kind of got that line sparked a little bit. But Tuesday, kind of a game to forget for the Rangers. You know, you lose 70% of your faceoffs. You just have no possession. You have no possession of the puck. They lost. They were constantly losing faceoffs in the offensive zone. So they couldn't sustain anything uh, in the defensive zone. You know, the, the second period, they gave up 
they lost two big faceoffs in the defensive zone. Both led one led to a goal, and then led to a big time chance that they held the Rangers in the zone for two minutes. So the Rangers need to address that fast, or else this is going to be a bigger, bigger issue. The Rangers' lone win of the week came Thursday night in overtime, where all-world rookie Alexis Lafreniere got his first NHL goal, his first NHL point. He finally breaks through, scores a beautiful game-winning goal on a great shift and assist from Colin Blackwell. Blackwell has came into the lineup the last Sunday against the Penguins. He scored a goal in his first game. He got an assist Tuesday against the Sabres, and he assists on the game winner to Lafreniere. Uh, he's played great. He was the Rangers' best forward probably Thursday night, one of the best forwards Thursday night. He got bumped all the way up to the second line, and he played second line again tonight. He leaves the game early. The Rangers just said he will not return. They have not elaborated on what his injury is, so hopefully he will not be out long-term because the Rangers seem to maybe have found something in him. He gave the Rangers a big boost. Um Thursday. I mean, Phil DiGiuseppe kind of gave them a boost over the weekend. He played very well in that fourth line, third line, second line, kind of moving up. Kind of like the, like I said, Jesper Fast kind of a role. And Blackwell kind of came out of nowhere. And I know it was a questionable move to sit Godier and Lemieux. I know Lemieux took a dumb penalty, but, you know, Godier's a he, good young player. And he's been scratched since the first game against the Penguins for Blackwell. And Blackwell's delivered. It's tough to take a guy out of the lineup when he's delivering. So, But the big thing from that game is Lafreniere's game-winning goal. Igor looked good in net. Uh, we'll get into that later on. But you know the biggest thing is his Lafreniere breaking through, and hopefully this gives him the confidence going forward to step, you know, for his game to step up. He's been snake-bitten. You know, he had, I think, like two or three chances right on the goal line that he couldn't finish on Thursday. Tuesday, he had an opportunity. Sunday against... Uh, last Sunday against the Penguins, he had two shots go just wide. So he's been putting himself in great spots, great position to score. He just couldn't deliver, and he finally does in overtime. Uh, and the, the Rangers had a team meeting Tuesday night after the, the loss, and Chris Kreider said that the, the, the message was sent to the team, and they responded Thursday. Unfortunately, tonight, Saturday night, the Rangers lose 5-4 to four in overtime. And it's deja vu all over again. The Rangers had a lead going into the third period. And the previous two games against the Penguins, they had a lead going to the third period. And now all three games end in a Rangers loss. Two of them in overtime. One of them, they give up a goal with a minute 30 left to lose. So, you know, maybe it's not good luck going in against the Penguins up one going into the third period. But, you know, you, you have to win games that you have a lead in the third period. This is... This is not the season to be throwing away games in a short season. And they go in 4-3. Chris Kreider played a great game. He scores a goal in the game. He scored, I think, he's got two goals in the last three games, so he's starting to heat up a little bit. Uh, he was physical all night long. He was showing the speed was showing. So it seems like he's dialed in now. I think probably the Tuesday team meeting, I, I believe, it hasn't come out yet, but I believe he was probably the vocal guy in the locker room. I know he was the vocal. He had an, an angrier tone in the post-game conference on Tuesday saying that something needs to change. So I have to think being one of the leaders on the team that he was one of the guys who stepped up and said something during that meeting. And his play is showing afterwards. But yeah, so 4-3, so you know, back and forth game, going into the third period. And what do you know? The Rangers lose a face-off. Uh, Zabanejad loses a face-off and right off the draw. 
boom, goal, 4-4. We're going to OT. Uh, in overtime, the Rangers, unfortunately, get stuck with Zabanjad and Panarin out there for a very, very long shift. Uh, they were out there for about a minute and a half after their own offensive zone chance. And the Penguins, I think they made two or three shift changes while they were out there. So they had fresh legs. Crosby scores. Penguins win. Uh, a goal, a shot that Gorgiev probably should have stopped. But again, why is Gorgiev playing? Why isn't Igor in net? Igor played well Thursday night. On the season, Igor's got a 2.73 goal allowed. Georgie's got a 3.27. They have identical 1-2-1 and records, so no one's a world beater here. But clearly from the numbers, Igor's the better goalie right now. Even when you watch the games, Igor's a better goalie. Gorgiev got benched two periods into the Devils game, giving up four goals on 20 shots. So I think, I don't know why Quid isn't sticking with Igor and just letting him go. They, they can't, these goalies won't find a rhythm if you're going one and one. You need to give a guy three or four games to get into a rhythm and then give him a rest. Especially when you're playing these series where it's a game, off day, game, and then you play another series in the week, there's two or three days in the week that you're off. So I don't think fatigue is going to be a major issue right now. Now, I know it's early in the year, so you don't want to burn a guy out. But you've dug yourself a pretty big hole here early on. You can't just be throwing games away. You know, a guy gives up five goals. You score four goals in a game, you should win that game. You know, a couple cheap ones got on Gorgiev tonight. But, you know, I'm sure we'll see Igor Monday night against the Penguins. But, you know, you got to let him get into a rhythm. The Rangers now play, let's see, after tonight's game, they'll now play five of the next six games at home. You know, they're still in last place in the division, but, you know, they're still only five points out of a playoff spot. So coming into this coming into this weekend, there are four points out. You beat the Penguins both games. You're right there. So an OT loss isn't the worst thing in the world. You still got a point out of it. But you got to win these games. You got to win at home. This is... This is the stretch to make up for the beginning of the season. If the Rangers can't, if the Rangers can't dig themselves somewhat out of this hole, playing six of these next games, six of these next five games at home, then I mean you might as well pack it in because it's gonna be really tough to rebound from that. Now the bigger issue for the Rangers is faceoffs. They're on the season they're forty two point six percent in the faceoff dot. And I mean we saw it tonight. Zabanajad loses the faceoff, leads to a tying goal. Saw Tuesday, especially, they had no puck position because they're losing 70% of faceoffs. So what's the answer? You have Heedle out. So you have Howden now playing third line. You have Kevin Rooney playing on the fourth line. And Zabanajad can't win a faceoff if his life depended on it. He's terrible this year. He's 45% of the year in faceoffs. He's a career over 50% average. I mean, Zabajan terrible as in general has been terrible. He's minus four in the year with two points in eight games. If that's not making Zabajad, where is what happened to him? I know he had a COVID and missed all training camp. So as much as he says it's not affecting him, I you have to think that's the case. I mean, he's whiffing on pucks. He's missing wide open opportunities in the defensive zone. You can see him getting. I don't know if it's, again, because of COVID, but he just looks tired. It looks lethargic out there. But something's got to click in him because if he's not 
playing, if he's at the star center for the Rangers, then they are in trouble. I said earlier, Ryan Strom has stepped up a little bit. He's playing a little better. But Ryan Strom is not Mika Zibanejad. We need, this, we need, we need last year's Mika Zibanejad back, or else the Rangers are in, are in big trouble. And when you look ahead, is there a possible trade for the Rangers first center? You know, Hedl could be out six weeks. That's a lot of a shortened season. Warriors could be left with this, you know, not great depth behind you. Brett Howden has not played well. He had a good training camp, has not translated to the regular season. He's pretty much invisible on the ice. I, I couldn't tell you a positive or negative thing about him, which probably the negative's good, but, I mean, he's not really making that big of an impact at all. So who do you go get? Do you go sign a Brian Boyle? And the your career guy, but you know he can win a faceoff. I don't know. I don't know if he's going to help your fourth line that much. You know, he's 36, 37 years old. But you know he's going to win a faceoff for you. Do you go after Sam Bennett up in Calgary? He wants out. He's a good player. You know, again, third, fourth line player. Never really developed into the big player that, you know, maybe some draft experts thought he would be coming into the league. But he's a pretty good faceoff guy, a little over 50%. You know, I don't know what he'll cost the Rangers, but you know, that's another guy. He's a younger guy. Not young, young, but he's a younger guy that kind of fits the rebuild mode. You know, someone who's kind of doesn't fit the rebuild re, <clears throat> the rebuild mode, but you know, it's an interesting name to look at is Ryan Getzlaff. And he has a no trade clause last year of his contract. I can see Anaheim moving him prior to a contender, though. I don't think the Rangers could be contenders. Unless they turn it around quick, but he will give the team a veteran presence if they do want to acquire someone like that. I can see Getzloff getting moved though to a contender. His last year, uh, again, he's got no trade clause, so he could just want to retire as a duck. But you know, I don't think Anaheim's going anywhere this year. I think he wants another shot of a cup, and he's a he's a very good locker room guy, very good leader. So he's an interesting name to watch in the trade deadline. And then another name, how about our old friend Derek Stepan? Kind of crazy to say him. He's only 30 years old. When you think of Stepan, you do not think of a 30-year-old. I feel like he's been in the league for 20 years. But another good face-off guy, good penalty killer. Now he's more of a third, fourth line player. Probably more of a third line player. He can probably play up in the second line. Last year of a giant contract the Rangers gave him way back when. So he's in the contract year. Maybe, and he's playing for Ottawa now, and Ottawa's awful. Ottawa's the only team worse than the Rangers in the Eastern Conference right now. So is he a guy maybe you go pick up? 30 years old, and they're really not, you know, not too far removed from some big seasons. Pick him up, see how he plays this year. Maybe you can re-sign him to a, I mean, you're not going to re-sign him to a $6 million deal, which he has now. But I doubt he's going to cost you an arm and a light to get him from Ottawa. It'll be interesting to see if they move him. And maybe the Rangers can re- reacquire him. I love Stepan. I was upset when they traded him away. I understood the move. Obviously, he was the star of the rebuild was his trade. But maybe they bring him back. You know, Maybe the Rangers need a little more leadership on this team. It's a very young team. You have Chris Kreider, Yamika Zibanejad as your leaders. Truba, you know, I'm not, you know, Panarin's not wearing an A. 
You have a lot of young guys, the youngest team in the league. So why not bring another veteran? Only 30 years old. He's not He's not 50. And then the other issue is the defense, the Rangers' defense. Yeah, Jacob Truba, first two games a year look great. And then it's been downhill ever since then. He has not looked good the last six, real five, six games. He can't. He's got a great shot, and for whatever reason, he can't put the shot on net. I don't understand what is wrong with his shot. Everything goes wide. And when he does shoot it, for whatever reason, the Rangers can't get a deflection on it. And I know he's playing against the top, you know, the top lines, but you know, he just hasn't looked good recently. But he's much better than the bottom pairing. You know, Tony D'Angelo, after his benching, has come back. He's played a little bit better. Not great, but he just looks slow this year. He looks a lot slower than last year. Uh, even in the offensive zone, he just isn't making that crisp pass that he was last year. He's back on the first power play, which is interesting. They have Fox and him on the power play. So they drop Kreider off the power play, the first power play. But D'Angelo's minus six on the year right now. No goals. He's not playing well. And whoever his defense pairing is, Jack Johnson or Brendan Smith, they're just ter- they're terrible. Jack Johnson's horrible. He's so bad. He's out with a groin injury right now. So you can't fault him for tonight's loss. But you know, every time he's on the ice, it's bad. I saw a stat the other day that he hasn't been on the ice for one Rangers goal yet this year. Yeah, and he's been on the ice for about seven of the opponents. So, that's not good things. <laughs> but looking ahead, do you, know, do you play a Libor Hayek now? Do you start giving some younger guys looks? Because these guys aren't the answer. And Smith looked terrible tonight. He got benched, didn't play any, barely played in the third period tonight. Rangers basically played with five defensemen. So do you, do you give Libor a look? Do you see where he is developmentally? Do you look at a, a Matthew Robertson? You know, it's him in training camp. If the Rangers aren't going to be a playoff team this year, why not give some kids looks? See what you have. Let them get some NHL experience. It's better than we have now. I'd rather see one of those kids mess up than Jack Johnson. Hopefully this is Jack Johnson's one and only Ranger season. And Brendan Smith isn't in the long-term plans either. They're kind of just strapped with his contract for right now. So let the kids play. Let Hayek play. Let's see what we have in him. Last time he was with the Rangers, he played with Mark Stahl, who again, similar to these two, was basically immobile in the defensive zone in the final years of the Rangers. So Hayek had to carry a lot of the load back there. So let's see what he has. Let's see what he's developed into. Or do you go trade for a defenseman? You know, Vince Dunn is a guy who apparently wants, or St. Louis wants him gone. 24-year-old, very good defenseman. Stanley Cup experience. Had a very good year last year. Had a very good Stanley Cup season year. I'm sure he's going to cost a lot for the Rangers to acquire him. But, I mean, I think you have to, you got to ask. You have to look at that. And also the scary thing is, looking at the future, you know, you right now you have a lot of young defensemen in the future, but no one's really NHL ready right now. So if Tony D'Angelo's not the answer, you have two years left or one year left after this year on his contract. Easy, you can move him. You know, Brendan Smith's gone, Jack Johnson's gone. But who do you bring in? You know, you gotta hope one of those defensemen that you have this great pipeline defenseman, you gotta hope one of them steps up. I know Niels Lundqvist over in Sweden has been lighting it up 
but he's not signed to an entry level yet. So the Rangers have to sign him. That's scary. They haven't signed him yet. He's going to have, I don't know what kind of bargaining power he's going to have because you have to sign the, the entry levels really not negotiable, but they need to sign him. He's, he's, he's been playing extremely well over there. You know, the Rangers tried to get a deal done with him last year. They couldn't figure, you know, they couldn't come to terms. So let's hope they figure that out soon. I mean, I wouldn't mind them trying to figure out how to bring him over this year to get him some ice time. But we'll see. The Rangers play again Monday night against Pittsburgh. Hopefully they can get two points in that game. Hopefully we see Igor back in net. But they have to turn around from the faceoff perspective, and they got to figure out defensively. If they don't figure that out, and if Zabanager doesn't figure it out, then you know this season can go south, or is going south, can go even further south quick. But you know they got three points this week. You know they looked very good Thursday night, and tonight they again they played very well for forty minutes. The first period, they were down 2-1, but they outplayed the Penguins. They're the better team. Second period, they go back and forth. They take the lead from the Penguins. They look, you know, going back and forth. Cryer looked like a madman in the second period. And then the third period, they look like they're skiing on eggshells out there. They look so nervous. And then finally, the Penguins tie it up. And then in overtime, the Rangers really had one opportunity in offense. And then you know, they just got tired, and, and Crosby won it. So we'll see you Monday night. You know, the Rangers have time. They still have time here. They have a bunch of home games. Hopefully they turn it around. And this is this conversation is a lot better next week, but you know, they have work to do. This week we have a really cool guest on the show. 15-year NHL veteran, a three-time Stanley Cup winner, and a member of the 94 Stanley Cup team, Greg Gilbert. So we talked to Greg about playing for the Islanders dynasty. What it was like playing for Mike Keenan. He shares some pretty funny stories about Mike off the ice. And also, he, we go into about the 94 team and talk about that great run. Let's send it to our interview with Greg. Today, we are joined by three-time Stanley Cup champion, 15-year NHL veteran, 837 regular season games played, 133 playoff games played, and the only player to appear in the Stanley Cup for both the Islanders and the Rangers, Greg Gilbert. Thanks for joining us. Kyle, well, thanks so much for having me. So you played in your youth in the Quebec Pee Wee Hockey League uh, hockey uh, tournament. Can you explain to people what a big deal that is? Oh my gosh, it's uh, it's huge. I mean, uh, not only uh, for for Canadian teams, but uh, I mean, we had a lot of U.S. teams coming up, especially uh, teams out of Detroit and, and the uh, Massachusetts area. To compete for this uh, this tournament, and uh, back then we were allowed to hit in Pee Wee, and uh, the rules for the tournament were uh, you're not allowed to hit. So uh, it was competitive. I mean, there's no question about it. Some great teams, um, and um, but really that's our first experience. I mean, as a young player, you're playing in front of your parents and the opposition's parents, and, and maybe some some scouts that are trying to pick up uh, early early assessments on you for for major junior, but. Um, you know, then you go into the, the, the Colisee in, in uh, Quebec City and you're playing in there and you're, there's 16,000 people and they love their hockey and you're playing in front of people that are, are passionate about the game. I mean, obviously the Nordique were back in, in those days in the Rampart. Um, so you're in there and that's your first experience playing in front of a National Hockey League uh, crowd and uh, the excitement was, was second to none. And obviously the you know your your nerves and your intensity and all that stuff is picked up. But uh, what a what a great experience! What a great tournament! 
Uh, it's so well run every year, and it's. Uh, I was very fortunate to be a part of a team that uh, had a little bit of success there. We didn't win it, but uh, had some success there, and uh, just experienced that. And yeah, you really learn. It really opens your eyes on, on what to expect going down the road as, uh, as an older player. And then you played your uh, OHL career in Toronto. What was that like playing in such a big city, a big hockey city like that? Uh, it was good. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, I, I didn't get a chance to go to many Marley games or Leafs games. Uh, but I, whenever I did, um, you know, the back in the days of the Tonellis and Boudreaux and, and players like that, uh, Paul Matiers, uh playing major junior, the, the, the gardens was packed. The old gardens was packed. And by the time uh, I started playing junior, we were – you know, 2,500, 3,000 people maybe. So it was an empty building, but uh, just love playing in that building, the old barn and uh, always great ice. And uh, I was very fortunate enough to be able to stay at home. Um, if Marley's hadn't picked me, I was moving out to Kingston by the sounds of things. And Mr. You know, Jimmy Morrison uh, sounded like he was going to take me. But uh, I was very fortunate to play with a lot of good players, a lot of good people, uh, some good coaches. And uh, like I said, I was very fortunate to be able to stay at home, stay in my high school, and uh, my life uh, hadn't changed that much, moving away from home, living in billets, uh, and so forth. So uh, I was pretty pretty fortunate, but uh, a lot of great memories from Baby Junior. And you were taken 80th overall by the New York Islanders in 1980 draft. What was that draft day experience like? Well, I got I got to admit, Kyle, I was out in the backyard cutting my mom's lawn. So uh, I I had no idea. I know it was draft day and what have you, and I I didn't uh, have any idea. Uh, where I was going to be drafted or if I was going to be drafted. So that was out of my control. And, um, you know, once I was drafted, I got a phone call from uh, Jimmy Davilano. And uh, Jimmy said, you know, we drafted you uh, eighth, yeah, 80th and, uh, you know, fourth round. Uh, but the fifth pick, I think Monty Trotche went ahead of me and Dave Simpson and all those guys went ahead of me, which is fine. But um, it, it was just an opportunity. Yeah, you know, where I was drafted didn't matter. It was just a, an opportunity to be drafted. And, you know, that's your that's your chance and what you make of your chance is, uh, is what counts the most and uh, that's what we're trying to get across to our, our players here in juniors it doesn't matter where you're drafted it's it's an opportunity you, you have a chance and, and uh, uh, again an opportunity to, to, to prove what you can do and become a part of the national hockey league team and i knew it was going to be a tough uh, tough lineup to crack i mean you look at the, the great players that were there and um, you know had already won cups and and uh, as a young player you're thinking like a uh, maybe New York, maybe the Islanders wasn't the best game to get drafted by in the back of your head because how are you going to get in there? But, you know, you just, all you can do is, is control what you control. And you, you work at it and, and you put the extra time in and, and uh, you try to do more than the other players that you're, you're competing against. And uh, I was very fortunate to, uh, to have been drafted by them and had the opportunity to, uh, to play there. And uh, they created a spot for me and I learned so much, uh, not only from the coaching staff, but from the players on, on how to be a pro and how to prepare and the work that needs to be done to, to prepare to, to play every night and every day in practice. And, um, you know, the players sit there when I got in there, I mean, you go right down the list and how many Hall of Famers and how many uh, great players were there. Uh, they taught me how to become a pro and, and what was expected every day. And, uh, you know, we had our fun. There's no question about that. But, um, when you went to the rink, it was about it was about work. It was about performing. It was about executing. And um, you know, I, I I've always said I can't thank those guys enough for what they taught me and, and uh, taught me how to be a pro. And your last year in the OHL, you had a huge year. You had 41 goals and 108 points, and then you find yourself right in the playoff run with the Islanders. What was that like? Just getting the call up and say, "Hey, you're going right from the O right into the playoffs." Well, I, I mean, it was uh, it was. 
I was excited. There's no question about it. Obviously, the nerves, you know, going out of Major Junior after we got beat out in the second round. But, um, you know, all, all you can control is what you can control and do what you're told to do. And, and uh, the one thing that I could control is my work ethic and, and how I played. And uh, I didn't want to change how I played. That's probably one of the reasons that I was called up is uh, I was a straight-ahead player. I wasn't a fancy player. And, you know, I knew what I had to do to be uh, you know, hopefully help and contribute to that team. And I got the opportunity the first round in the playoffs there, I believe, against Pittsburgh. Um, really, that's all I could do. I, I was excited. I was uh, nervous. I mean, my gosh, it was, you know, the nerves of the kid going into a, a National League uh, playoff series right out of junior. And, uh, I was very thankful that I had that opportunity, but I wanted to make the best of it. And it was the only series that I played, but um, – you know, you, you do the extra work. I mean, I went in at 208 pounds and came back to uh, came back to Toronto, uh, probably about 192. So uh, <laughs> there's a lot of extra work to be done to stay ready in case you got called on again. And, and that's uh, that was probably my first step of really learning what it took to to be uh, to be a professional. Is, is the extra work that's done on the on the sidelines that nobody sees, and uh, how you have to prepare and how you have to stay ready just in case you get the call. So. It was, a, it was a good experience for me, a great experience for me to, to go through that and, and watch those guys play night after night, win, win the cup again. And, um, you know, there's myself. I think Gordy Deneen was there with me. And, uh, you know, we were part of the – they call them the black aces, the, the guys that, do, that aren't playing but doing the extra work. And, you know, I think we were with uh, Hector Marini too. And, and Hector was uh, an unbelievable person and a great pro. And learned a lot, uh, you know. So it opened my eyes for next season and uh, getting ready for camp and how to prepare. What was the biggest adjustment for you leaving from junior to go uh, to jump to the NHL? Well, just just the, the speed and the intensity of the game. I I, I think that I adjusted well, um, but just the work that it took, like every day. It's not a it's not in junior where you're you you know you're a 19 year old or an 18 year old playing against a 16 year old. You're, that discrepancy in age and, and maturity is a big thing, especially that early in life. But you, know, you get to the pros and you're playing against 30 year olds and in great shape and have a good fitness base and have been around for years and, you know, they think the game well, they know how to play. So it's uh, it's a bit of an adjustment uh, getting up with the pace, the speed, the thought process and making those decisions and, and making the right, the right decisions at the right time when, when you're under pressure. So, um, but it was good. It, it was a learning experience. And I think that was the biggest thing for me is just the, the speed of the game and your decisions had to be that much quicker. You weren't able to do things that you did in junior, simplify the game. And that's what worked, works best. You talked about all the guys on that team, you know, the Nystrom, Gillies, Bossy, Trottier. I mean, it goes on and on for Hall of Famers. Who is, uh, or who were the guys that really took you on their wing when you first got there? They all did. I mean, it's it's not one or one person or two person or five. The whole team did. I mean, once you, you step into that dressing room, you're a part of the team. And, uh, everybody, everybody's expectations for you were high, um, but everybody took me under their wing. Uh, you know teaching me things day after day and, and uh, talking to me and, you know, whether it's practice or a game, you know, sitting on the bench and they're trying to give me direction on little, little intricacies, I guess, on, on, uh, on playing the game up at that level. And, you know, Trotz was outstanding, Clarky, uh, Johnny T, Billy Carroll. I mean, I can, Wayne Merrick. I mean, I, I can go right down the list and everybody that was in that dressing room helped me as a young player um, become the player that I turned out to be. And the 83-84 season was your first full year in the NHL, and you had a breakout year with 31 goals, yeah. uh, 66 points. What was clicking that year for you that you had such a successful offensive season? 
Uh, well, you know what? I, the first half of the season, I think I was playing with uh, uh, Brent Sutter and, and Dwayne. It could have been or, or even Butchie. Um, but then the second half of the season, I played with, with Boston Trots. And, and uh, you know, either one of those line combinations that I played with were, were so easy to play with because I, I knew exactly what I had to do. Uh, and, and where I had to be and what my role was. And it was the same with Boston Trotz in the second half. And they were so easy to read off. Of. I mean, uh, you know, Trotz was a, a hard-nosed guy, and, and that was my job to get in the corners, win the battles, and, um, you know, find the open holes at the right time. And Boss was, well, was worked just as hard as anybody else. And, and But he was a trigger man. And, you know, just go to the net. You know, the puck's going to go there sooner or later. So um, I had a lot of success uh, because of them. And, um it wasn't anything special that I did, but the, the help that I got from my line mates and, and the rest of the team uh, contributes to, to an individual success. And uh, in the second half, I was, I was very fortunate, like I said, to play with those guys. And, and they were so easy to play with, so easy to read off of. And uh, I don't know, there was a bit of chemistry there. And I know Clarky and JP and guys like that and Borny had played, played with them before. And they had success. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, I, I had success because of them. They were easy to play with, and I knew what my job was. So I knew where to be. Not a bad line to play with. No, for sure. Uh, who were – I guess I know it's very – I guess they come off as almost a serious team, but who were the, the prank guys in the locker room for that year, that run? Oh, my gosh. The list goes on. I mean, you go – everybody was a prankster for the most part. Uh, you know, you got, you got JT and you got Clarky, Barney. I mean, everybody was – I mean, we had fun. We had fun pulling pranks and, and doing things in the room. And obviously, as a rookie, you're not going to you're not going to be pulling too many pranks, but you're the, you're the, the brunt of some of them. But uh, those guys were just friggin' hilarious. Like just some of the things they did. And you know, Smitty was a great person. He very intense on game days, but just a, a loose and, and loving man, and uh, cared more about his teammates than, than anything else. And, and obviously, not his family, but um, you know, cared about uh, his teammates. And, and everybody just wanted to have fun. You know, there was work time, there was play time, and uh, that's – I learned so much from those guys on, on how to how to be, like I said, a pro, but, but how to have fun doing it. And uh, whether you're on the road, on the plane, in the, the dressing room, whatever, there was – you were always kind of peeking over your shoulder to see there might be something there that you, <laughs> you weren't expecting. So we had a, we had a lot of a lot of pranksters, a lot of jokesters in that room. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's what made it so light, such a great atmosphere and a winning atmosphere because they, they knew how to separate work from play. And uh, but when, when it came to crunch time, man, everybody was there. You played for a legendary Al Arbor. What was it like playing for him? Well, I mean, I, I learned so much from Al. Um, you know, Al wasn't so much a yeller and a screamer, and you never wanted to, to get him in a position where he did yell. And, and there were a few times, and, um, you know, we, we sat there like some whipped puppies. I mean, we took it, uh, took it like we were supposed to take it. We understood why it was being done. But Al was a very straightforward uh, coach. He had a great sense of humor, but uh, it was about business and about getting the job done and, and being the best player you could be. So whatever whatever Al said, you did. And you listened and you learned and you uh, executed what he wanted. And, uh, I mean, his his demands were high. I think our demands were high on each other in the dressing room. And, but, uh, yeah, Al, was, Al, Al had a demeanor where you listened. When he talked, you listened. And... Uh, there was positives, there was negatives, there was whatever he, he felt needed to be said at the right time. And, and, and that's one of the, the, the great things about Al, uh, you know, along with the many others, was that he, he knew the right time and, and 
how to approach the situation uh, to address his players. And uh, those times where he was joke around, he, he knew when we were tight, and he would joke around and crack a joke or something and try to loosen us up. And he knew when we were too loose, and he'd rein us in and and uh, make us, I guess, more focused uh, on, on the job at hand. And um, I, I think that was one of his best attributes was he, he knew how to read his team and each player individually and as a group and uh, how to how to get the best of them. And you had another young player there that came up with you, Pat LaFontaine. What was he like as a teammate? Pat, he was good. I mean, he was uh, he was a good young player, there's no question. And him and Flats came in at the same time. And they both added elements to our, our club. And, uh, you know, we get to that, that fifth cup final. Unfortunately, we weren't able to overcome Edmonton. But they were big parts. And uh, Flats played his role, played his game. And Patty did the same. You know, uh, real good person, uh, very caring person, and, and a very uh, uh, determined teammate and uh, com uh, committed teammate. So uh, they, were, they were both big parts of our hockey club, no question. You had a lot of battles with the Oilers in the 80s. What was it like playing against Gretzky at his peak and having Messier and that whole team out there? Well, I mean, you know, history speaks for itself, but they were great players. And, and the one thing I, I really I really saw and learned from those guys uh, playing against them was that, uh, you know, they were never afraid to try something. You know, they, they made some some unbelievable plays. They, they created so much offense and opportunity uh, just by trying things. And, and they didn't work all the time. They were never afraid to go back and, and try them again. And uh, I think that's really what made them great players is that lack of fear of, of failure. Um, you know, they, they did fail. There's no question about it. They, they had failures throughout their career. But they were never afraid to jump back and, and uh, get back into the fray, so to speak, and, and try to do things that they know how to do best. And, um, but they were they were tough. I mean, their, their vision, their, their, their sixth sense, I call it, in the game is seeing things happen before they happen. And, uh, seeing where players are going and where to put pucks and, and what to do, uh, I think is what made them great players and, and, and great Hall of Famers. Is, uh, they had that sixth sense, but they were never afraid. They were never afraid to try things. In the 89, you got moved over to Chicago. Was that a surprise to you? Not really. Uh, the Islanders were going through a transition, and they were bringing a lot of guys in uh, that were, were getting more ice time than myself. And I, I didn't want my career to end that way. Uh, I knew I still had a lot to offer, and uh, you know they went in one direction, and, and I think since that time from, until the early '90s, they really didn't have a whole lot of success. So, um, you know, I, I wasn't going to sit there and watch other players come in and, and uh, you know, make mistakes and, and just keep getting thrown back out there. So, I wasn't going to end my career that way. So, uh, I was very fortunate that uh, Mike Keenan and Bob Pulford, the Blackhawks, picked me up uh, in the waiver draft and uh, went out there and do what I had to do. I knew what piece of the puzzle that I had to fill, what my job was, and uh, I had a lot of fun, a lot of success, and, and uh, uh, probably uh, one of the closest teams I ever played with uh, in the dressing room uh, outside of uh, the early early teams uh, with the, the Islanders in the early 80s. Uh, camaraderie, the, the friendship, the, the, you know, the, the team aspect of it was, was outstanding, and uh, I loved playing there. And I hated to leave, but uh, you know, the terms were what the terms were, and uh, I moved on to to the Rangers. But great people, I'm still still uh, keep in touch with a lot of uh, ex uh, ex teammates from Chicago, and uh, love them to death. We had a lot of fun. 
unfortunately, we didn't win there. We went to the finals and got swept by Pittsburgh. But, uh, you know, it could have been a different outcome, but uh, obviously it wasn't. Uh, but it was, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun and, and a great group of guys to play with. So you play with a young Jeremy Roenick there. Was he that much of a character when he first came to the league as well? No, no. Prime time wasn't that much of a character when he came in. Uh, he was a good, young, hardworking player. I mean, we were playing in, in the uh, playoff series against St. Louis, and he got his teeth knocked out. And, you know, next shift he was back out there. He was just uh, he was determined to, to prove his worth with, for our club, and, and we saw that early. And you know, once uh, success comes, I mean, it, it, I don't want to say it changed JR. I mean, he still kept working, he still had success, but uh, you know, the perception of, of uh, JR. In his later years as, as a player, uh, compared to the early years when he first came in, um, it was different. And uh, he came in as a, a fired up young kid that wanted to prove his work and, and his work to the team. And uh, he wanted to be a big part of it, which obviously he became a, a huge part of the Blackhawks organization. But uh, no, he, was, he was a great kid then. He's a good person now, great person now, uh, a lot of fun. And uh, you know, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a pleasure to play with him. Now, a guy who came up while you were there, Dominic Hoshik, he only played, I think, a you know, handful of games in two seasons. Play, uh, practicing against him, did you see uh, what a star he would be? Oh, my gosh. He, uh, he'd never quit on a puck. In, in any situation, whatever type of drill it was, he would never quit on a puck. And uh, when he got scored on, he was, he was legitimately pissed. And uh, that's in practice. He didn't like being scored on, and you'd see it in his work ethic. He just never quit on a puck. And you think you have him, and all of a sudden, you know, some some part of his body finds a way to stop it. And uh, you can see that through his whole career on uh, on all the teams that he played for. Was he just never quit on a puck? And, you know, he's he's one of the first goalies that actually kind of came out and charged at you uh, when you're you're one on one situation when you're going in on him. And, and a lot of guys back in and back in, but he kind of. He'd back into a point and then come out at you and take away your, your angle and your, your space. So uh, it was interesting to see his style of play. But uh, my gosh, it was, you could see the success he was going to have and, and the great goal that he was going to become because he just, he fought. He fought for everything. And uh, you know, that, that shows in his, uh, his career, his numbers, and his, his success that he's had. So it's, uh, it, was, it was fun to play with him. You played with some great goalies throughout your career, Billy Smith, Mike Richter, you know, Ed Belfour, Hasek, uh, Grant Fear later on. Who was the toughest to practice against? Hasek. Richter was good. Ricky was the same. He had the same. All the goalies that competed hard in practice, Eddie was the same. I mean, Snatch was the same. Uh, that's Dominic. So there, there was Eddie and Dominic and, and Ricky. Purzy had his days. I mean, he was, he was uh, when I played with Grant, he was – near the end of his career, so to speak, but uh, still hated to get scored on. Uh, you know, Smitty, Smitty just hated to get scored on, so that was my early ex uh, exposure to uh, a goalie that, yeah, you just don't want to go near the blue paint and practice even against him. So, um, you know, very fortunate to play with a lot of, a lot of great goalies. And, and uh, boy, I mean, I look back and, and uh, some of the players I played with, not, and goalies included, was, uh, I was very, very fortunate to be able to, to put on the same sweater. So when you got to Chicago, you started your tenure playing under Mike Keenan. What, what was that like? What was Iron Mike like? <laughs> Iron Mike was Iron Mike. 
just had to get to know him. He had to get to know you. He had to get you to, to know what your limitations and your parameters were and, and what he could do and what he couldn't do. And, um, you know, once you understood Mike and where he's coming from, it was easy. He was, he, he was a great coach. He's, he's always been a great coach, but he, he, he wanted to see how far he could go and uh, what you were willing to put up with. And, you know, when, we, when you were, you know, when you were, you were ready to fight back, so to speak. And, um, you know, uh, it was just, he, he tried to get, uh, he, Mike was really good at trying to get some kind of reaction out of his players, whether it was from uh, positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement. He just wanted a reaction. He wanted to get that, those juices flowing, so to speak, and, and get your, uh, your intensity levels up. And, um, he was a, he was a master at that, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you work hard, you do what you're asked to do. Um, just like playing under Al, uh, just, just do what you're asked to do and, and you know, give yourself 110% effort and, and Mike had no issues with you. And, uh, really the, the, you know, a lot of people, I guess, question his, his, his methods or his motives, but, uh, he's, he's won championships, not only in North America, but uh, over and obviously when the Garen Cup over in the, uh, the KHL, and it's it, his demands are high, and he wants he wants the players in his lineup that are going to uh, you know, rise to the occasion and answer those demands. And the ones that uh, aren't willing to do uh, what needs to be done to win are, are the ones that fall by the wayside. And, uh, like I said, Mike was was easy to read. No, did we butt heads at times? Yes, um, but we both understood that uh, we were both there to win. And, uh, all of his players were there to win that, that he ended up with. So um, it was a pretty simple formula. Just work your, your backside off and, and away you go, and you're going to get the opportunity. So. What did he like about you in particular? You know, when you when he left, I think he went to the Rangers, you know, he brought you along to the Rangers and eventually to the Blues. So what was it that stuck with him that he needed Greg Gilbert on his team? Well, you know, being a coach, I mean, I've been coaching ever since I quit playing. So um, I, I know the one thing that, that – uh, I think that I brought was there was never a question of what Mike was going to get out of me after, night after night or day after day. It was uh, the reliability factor. Um, I knew what my job was. I wanted to do my job the best I could to help contribute to the team. And uh, I think that's what Mike, Mike liked the players. Uh, you know, as a coach, you stand behind the bench and you look at the numbers in the back and you're going, okay, which guys do I know are going to play the same way every night and every shift and, and how we need to play. And I think uh, maybe that I was one of those players. I, I I was asked to do a job. I knew what my job was, and I did the best of my abilities. And uh, whenever you have players sitting in front of you as a coach, and you know what they're capable of and, and what they're going to bring, it's it's uh, the stress isn't there anymore you know, as a coach. And uh, I think he trusted me. Right? He knew what my job was. I knew what my job was, and uh, he knew that I would do anything I had to do to, to do the best of my abilities. And uh, I think that trust factor is it's a huge thing. So then when you do move over to the Rangers, were guys asking you in training camp for tips on how yeah. to deal with him? Because yep. of experience? Yep. <laughs> well, it was, it was uh, yeah. Yeah, they were. Uh, it was uh, it was funny having some guys were like, how do you deal with him? Really, my answer was just just work. Just do what he said. You won't, you won't have any issues. You won't have any issues with him. Just, just, just compete. Just push yourself harder than you think you can push yourself. And he sees that, and you'll have no issues whatsoever. Compete like he wants you to compete. Play like he wants you to play. And it's easy. And when that first training camp with the or that training camp with the Rangers, did you see when you got there? Okay, this team's got a chance to win the cup. And you know, Keenan came in. And he shows the championship parade and everything. Like this is the goal. 
it, from day one was that set in everyone's mind this is going to be the year oh absolutely that was that, that's what everybody was there for you look around the dressing room and, and you know there's later additions like uh Nicole came in and, and mac t and, and guys like that came in later uh news uh, Lawrence, uh came in later but uh mike brought in the people that he thought were were quite capable and, and going to get the job done and from day one it was about winning the stanley cup it wasn't about being okay or being good, it was about uh, coming home with the, the silverware. Um, you know, there was there was players filtered out, and there was players filtered in through the course of the year. Obviously, uh, Neil Smith uh, and, and Mike had, had great conversations and, and made tough decisions, and some players to bring other ones in and, and move some out. But uh, what they built was a championship team, and, and uh, we knew we were good. And I, I think the one special thing about that team was everybody in that dressing room knew exactly what the role was. And, uh, you know, you go from, from Joey Kosher and myself to, to Sarge to, you know, Nunes and Larms and, and uh, you know, Gravy and, and, and Mess and, and Kobe and, uh, you know, Leachy. And, I mean, you go right down that list and everybody knew exactly the piece of the puzzle they had to bring night in, night out. But the one thing that was consistent in that club is everybody competed. And uh, that compete level uh, got better as the season went on. I mean, we, we led wire to wire on the President's Cup, which is, you know, supposed to be the curse. But... Uh, I guess we, we buried that one, but um, yeah, we had the skill, we had the, the pieces, we had the grinders, we had the grunts, we had the, you know, we had the people that, that knew exactly what their jobs were. And I think uh, I think that's why our team was so strong, is it, every night going out uh, of that door and onto the ice, uh, start the game, we knew we had a chance to win. And we had our bumps in the road, there's no question about it, but um, through through the schedule, the regular season, we knew, we knew what we had. And going into the playoffs, we knew, we, had, and we knew it wasn't going to be easy because everybody's fired up for it. But um, it was it was just a calming, calming feeling in that room, knowing that, uh, hey, Joey's got a job to do. i got a job to do. Everybody's got a job to do. So let's just do our jobs the best we can, and, and good things will happen. And I think that was one of the, the big pieces of our club. It was uh, We had the skill. We knew that. But we had the pieces that, uh, that knew what they had to do shift after shift to, to help the team. I know it's the outside observer, and it was a shock when you saw some of the players that got moved midseason, like Mike Gartner, uh, you know, young Tony Almonte. As someone who was used to Keenan, do you see those moves coming? Was that not obviously not as big a surprise? Like, okay, he's, he's bringing his guys in. This is not a shock. Well, uh, nothing. To be honest with you, at, the, at that that time of my career, uh, you know, thirty two years old, thirty three years old, uh, nothing surprised me. I've been through it. Uh, it wasn't my decision to, to you know, move those players or, or think that they should be moved. My job was to perform my my uh, expect up to my expectations and perform my role in the team. But Neil and, and Mike must have seen things that, that maybe they thought maybe an area to improve on. And, and Bones was a great player. I mean, went to Chicago, had a great. Uh, uh, great run there, and then and moved on. And Garcia, obviously Hall of Famer, and he could score and uh, do those things. I mean, year after year with the Islanders, I played Garcia when he was in Washington, and always a, a top end guy and a guy that we feared and a guy that we had to uh, you know keep tabs on. But you know the decisions are made up in the the war room, and uh, Mike and Neil felt that the, some some additions and subtractions had to be made, and uh, they they went uh, went forth in doing that. And, uh, it's tough. I mean, it's tough seeing teammates leave, and uh, it's it's good seeing uh, new teammates come in and welcome them and, and make them uh, part of the fold. So, um, 
yeah, I mean, you know, decisions are made for a reason. What their what their reasons were, uh, you'd have to ask them. But, uh, you know, as a player, you just sit there and you go, okay, guys are in, guys are out. Let's go. Let's uh, lace them up and, and get at it. So it's uh, for a player, it's pretty simple for me. Who were some of the guys in the locker room, or I guess in the practice ice that Keenan just went to war with? Oh, I'm, I'm sure there's <laughs> pretty much everybody at some point. So yeah, he's he's not picking favorites. Uh, but Mike Mike tests people like he wants to see what you're what you're made of, what your metal is, and what you can take, what you can't. And if you can't take him, then you won't be there. Um, but that you know, I, to be quite honest with you, Kyle, that year in '94 was the quietest I'd ever seen. Mike. And uh, not as much, not as much yelling, um, not as much. Uh, I guess I, I can't swear on a blog, but anyway, it's uh, just he, he was different. He was quiet, uh, and I think he, he once he got everybody in, in order and his team in place and Neil's team in place, um, he was quiet. He had that confidence. He had that calm, knowing that, that okay, the pieces are here, and uh, there's going to be nights where I have to kick him in the ass, but there's going to be nights where. I'm just going to have to stand there and change lines. And um, I, I think that's a calming effect for, for a coach. And I think that's where Mike reached that point, knowing that he didn't really have to, to yell and scream at us. Our, our accountability level in that dressing room between each other as players was uh, was outstanding. And, you know, Mess would say things at times. Leach would say things at times. Um, no, we, we had an older team. And we had a lot of leaders in that dressing room, and not just one or two. So... Mike knew the room would look after itself, and it was one less worry for him. So, going through the playoffs, you guys ran through the first two rounds of the Islanders and Capitals, and you get to the Devils. You get to Game Six. Messi has his famous guarantee. Yeah. What was the locker room like that morning after you guys come in? You see that in the news. Well, you know what we we put ourselves in that position, and, and taking nothing against Jersey because Jersey was a heck of a hockey club, but we put ourselves in that position. You know, did we start to question ourselves? I don't think we did, um, but there was there was a feeling there, and and I, I think Mess came out, and uh, you know, great players say great things and do great things as Mess did that night. But I think it was it was more of a I don't want to say a wake up call, but it was more of a, a belief from him in in our club that we were going to be able to get the job done in Game Six, and that's all our focus was in Game Six, and. Uh, I, I think that's what it was. It, it's it's bold for him to come out and say it, but I think it was a belief from him to the rest of us that we can get the job done. We'll get it done. And uh, obviously he had a great night, uh, but we found a way, and that's all our focus was, was the one day. And we'll focus on game seven when it's down the road, and uh, we'll go from there. But um, we knew it was going to be a tough series. We knew it wasn't going to be easy, and uh, it turned out to be a heck of a battle. But... Uh, I think that's where Mike Ness was coming from. I mean, you'd have to ask him, but that's the way I read it. It wasn't a, it wasn't a kick in the ass. It was, wasn't a wake-up call. It was just him knowing that we're capable of doing more than we've done up to that point. So we weren't going to let it go that easy. In, this, in the Cup Finals, you guys are up three games to one. You couldn't close that MSG. You go back to Vancouver. You drop game six in Vancouver. Now you're flying back to MSG. What was that flight like back to New York? Quiet. Was there a confidence deal on the team, or it was quiet? Well, we we, we did it to ourselves. Um, you know, before Game Five back home, uh, we we got ahead of ourselves. I think. I think. Um, you know, there, there was there was talk in the room that probably shouldn't have happened prior to the game. 
Uh, our focus wasn't as sharp as it needed to be, and, and we're, we're, we're planning a team that's a heck of a hockey team that's representing the West, and uh, they're a proud hockey club. And, um, you know, not taking anything away from Vancouver. I mean, they battled hard. They found a way to get to Game 7, but we we weren't as sharp and as good as we needed to be you know, to beat a team like them. And, um, you know, we lost that game. We go back, we lose the next one, and now we're back for 7. So, um we caused ourselves uh, more problems uh, than Vancouver did. Uh, they, like I said, we're taking nothing away from them. They had a great team. It was a great series, but um, we we just weren't us in, in game five. And uh, we let it slip away. We paid the price for it uh, behind the eight ball and then found a way uh, to get back in game seven. And then, you know, the rest is history. It was tight. It was hard fought. Uh, we got our breaks. They got their breaks. And uh, ultimately, we found a way to win it. But, um, yeah, it was, it was something that, that a lot of us think it should have ended earlier, but uh, you know, it didn't happen. And uh, the history history books will show that, uh, but we did win game seven, which is the most important one. I actually did see a funny quote from Stefan Mateau talking about game six, and he said, I always wanted to win it in New York. <laughs> well, we could have won game seven, in, game, so. in game five, <laughs> but we didn't. <laughs> So talking about that game seven, going into the, the third period, what is that locker room like before you go back out there? It's good. It's good. We're not in pins and needles. We're in control of the game. And we were playing the right way. We were doing the right things. And uh, we knew it was going to be tight and close. But we just had to go about uh, doing our business and, and play the way we can. And uh, we know doing that, we're going to win. So we've done it before. We've been in tight situations before. Let's, uh, let's go have at it. And then going into the, I mean, you've won three cups. That final minute of the game, how long is that final minute? 60 seconds. That's all it was, 60 seconds. Doesn't get any shorter any longer. Just got to play. And then the celebration afterwards, what was that like in the locker room? Oh, my God. Well, it was it was unbelievable. I mean, uh, you know, the 1940 thing, and you see all the signs and stands, and, you know, now I can die in peace and die happy or whatever it was. And, you know, we made so many people happy, but most importantly, we made ourselves and the organization happy. And, um, you know, the New York Rangers fans have been very passionate. They've been on the other side, but uh, coming in as an Islander, and they're not very friendly when you do. But uh, you know, they they they've been loyal. They've been uh, they're loyal. They they've been through a lot. They've been through some close times and some tough times. And uh, you know, but, uh, to get that done and and watch the shoulders drop, so to speak, and just relax and, and enjoy it. Uh, it, was, it was second to none. And in the dressing room, I mean, it was mayhem. It was just, uh, everybody was so happy. And then you had the parade the, uh, you know, the following day or two days later. Yeah. Any good parade day stories? Oh, God. Well, just, I mean, outside of sweating to death because we were probably drinking for two days. <laughs> but... Uh, Oh gosh, I mean, we're we're looking up fourteen and fifteen stories and sixteen stories, and you're seeing people standing on the ledges of buildings, and you're going like, you can't understand the magnitude of what happened. And um, when you see the smile on these people's faces and the ticket tape coming down, and uh, like I said, these people are that are up, you know, six hundred feet or five hundred feet, and and you're standing on the ledges, and the passion they have, and you know, wanting to be a part of it, and they've all been a part of it because they were the ones that pushed us to, to the final, uh, you know, 
the final take at the, the end of the race. But um, yeah, just just to see how happy the people were. It was just just unbelievable. Just unbelievable. And then looking back at the year, what's the uh, best like behind the scenes story that happened? Oh gosh, behind the scenes story. Oh, well, not stuff I can put on on blogs and let out there, but really, I, I don't know. I, I, behind the scenes story would, would probably be, um, you know, we were, we were in for a bit of a, we were going through a little bump in the road. I think, um, you know, uh, I think we lost two or three in a row, and we were heading south into Florida. You know, Mike usually would have just put the, the screws to us, right? you know, in the past teams I played for him in Chicago. But it was just, you know what, boys, just just blow off some steam. Just get, get back to where we were. And to me, that's that's what Mike was. He read us well. Um, but, I mean, I mean, some of the things that happened in the dressing room and that, I mean, my God, it's just freaking hilarious. I mean, Eddie, Eddie Olchek, I'm sure you've talked to Eddie, and he's got a ton of stories about things that happened in the room. Um, so like a, like a really good behind the scenes story, I don't know, but there's, uh, there's a lot of things that happen. Some I can't comment on others I'd rather not, but, uh, we, we just had fun. We, we wanted to win. We had a group of guys that, uh, did what it took. Where'd you go your day with the cup? Uh, I went, well, I was back home in Ontario. I was at uh, my mom's place. We had a bit of a bash in the backyard. Uh, I took it up to the hospital like I've done before in the past when I had the cups. Up to the kids' floor, the cancer floors, and uh, you know, went to see the smile on their faces and, and uh, maybe something they'd never seen in their life. But um, yeah, it made me happy, it made me feel good, and uh, it made them feel good. But uh, I always took it up to the hospital, and uh, I know that I know they appreciate it, and I, I appreciate them uh, letting me bring it up. But, uh, I think it's very important. And then that following year, you get claimed by St. Louis, and you go back with Keenan. Uh, in that locker room, same thing. He brought over a bunch of Rangers with uh, with him: uh, Glenn Anderson, Douglas, Sir, Esatikinen. I guess the same thing, obviously, for advice. But is it almost in the locker room like, okay, these are Keenan's guys, and it's kind of like a like almost like a separated thing? I I don't know whether you label us as Keenan guys. I mean, you know. Mike, Mike wants guys around and surround. Uh, he wants to surround guys uh, on our cl on his clubs with guys that he can trust, and he knows how they play, and they know what they bring. So that that comfort for a coach or, or an organization is uh, is a good thing. So there was pieces of the puzzle puzzle he brought over. Um, he knew we were capable of what we can do, and it was pieces that Mike wanted there, and uh, those pieces moved out. Again, it's it's a very similar, um, uh, I guess plan in place that uh, he knows what it takes to win and the pieces that he thinks can help him win, uh, he brings with him. And um, you, know, you don't always have to be a top-end scorer or a top-six guy. He, there's there's role players that, that come with him and, and have gone with him, uh, me included, uh, that he just knows the piece of the puzzle. I mean, when I got there, um, I was playing with uh, Neil Perrier and Denis Chassé, and, you know, two young kids coming in and, and great young players, and I loved it. I, I love playing with those guys, and uh, you know, I was able to teach them like like I did when I first broke in with the Islanders. Guys would talk to me, and I try to give them the, the little dynamics and intricacies of, of, of the game and how to play, and, and maybe some areas in, in ice management. But 
you know, I was there to help. I was there to mentor them, uh, those two guys, and, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and Mike knew that, you know, Andy was the same, and, and Nunes was the same. And uh, I think Steph came over later, and uh, you know, he, he knew he, he knew what he wanted. He knew who he wanted, and what their roles were going to be on the team because they they never complained about them before. So, uh, you know, it's unfortunate we didn't have we didn't win there. We had uh, we had a pretty good hockey club, and uh, it didn't work out. Uh, but that's that's hockey. And then the second year you were there, you guys had seven Hall of Famers on that team. What was it like practicing on that, like those practices? Well, you know what, Kyle? I missed most of the season because that's the year I blew my back. I retired that summer, so I, I'm, I don't want to say I missed it. I think I played 17 games that season. But, um, yeah, I was I was pretty much done after that. I don't think – I think I played one game after that. And I, I didn't play in the playoffs. Uh, so uh, practicing with them, with them early, I mean, we, we had an unbelievable team. Um, that's just the way it was. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't a part of it for the majority. Uh, but body falls apart every once in a while, and you, you adapt and you move on, and you know uh, there's an end coming soon. So you uh, you start planning for the future, and uh, that's what I ended up doing. I mean, I, I worked and you know, took my 36, 37 cortisone shots in the back you know, over the course of the year trying to get it back and ready to go, and it just wasn't going to happen. But um, it is what it is. There always comes an end. And of all the years with Keen, what's the craziest thing in your mind that he did? <laughs> it's it's hard to rank one, to be quite honest with you. There was uh, oh god. Well, I mean, one one had to be the Kobe incident where he stayed on the ice for like nine and a half minutes because he, he yeah. thought that Alex thought he was playing so well that Mike just didn't want to bring him off the ice, and the rest of us are in the bench just shaking our heads and laughing. So Alex didn't quite understand that as a young player, but uh, there was that one. Uh, there was a night in there was a night in St. Louis when I, when I was in Chicago. Uh, we were in the playoffs. I think it was game game four. We were up two games to one, and I think it was game four. And we were losing. We were losing like I don't know five three or something. In, in the, going into the third period, Mike came in, and in the old uh, St. Louis Arena, they used to have like, foldable tables set up. So on top of the tables, there was you know the, the Gatorade uh, uh, tanks that. We were filled with water or Gatorade, so you get it. But the one on the bottom, who was sitting on the floor, was filled with ice. So Mike came in. He wasn't real happy with this. He wasn't in a good mood. So he, uh, he'll, he'll probably be pissed at me for telling this story. But he, he, came, he came in just yelling and screaming, and he booted this this big keg on the, on the floor, thinking it was empty. And his, his foot folded in half like you would not believe. So he's hobbling. He doesn't miss a step. He's swearing at us. He's calling us every name in the book, and he's hobbling around that dressing room. And he, all you see is the towels go over our heads, and, and, and our heads are just chuckling, listening to him screaming yell. So I think we ended up losing the game anyway. We, we ended up winning the series. But, uh, and then the next day we flew back, or we flew back that night. And uh, so we, we get back, and, and uh, we practice the next morning back in the old stadium, and sure enough, Mike's up in the stands. <laughs> Mike's up in the stands. He's not on the ice again. Can't get his foot in the skate, so you know we're we're skating by him, calling every name in the book like you candy ass and what have you. And he's up there fucking yelling at his back. Pardon me, sorry for the the f bomb there, but he's uh, he's chuckling and laughing. And we're doing the same. We go get out of practice, but uh, that was that was a funny memory, a good memory. Obviously painful for Mike, but uh, there's there's a few more. 
So then after your career, you go into coaching. Is that something you always wanted to do? You know what? It, it's something I always wanted to stay in the game. Uh, and it's, it's, it's about as close as you can to, uh, to the actions, you know, coming to the, or getting to the actions of players. So um, I've always wanted to be able to help young players get to where they want to go, yeah, which is realizing their dreams in the National Hockey League. So I tried to do the best I could for I mean, it's 20 years now, 21 years. And, uh, I'm still doing it. I'm up in the Quebec League now. We're in a little bit of a shutdown that, uh, with the COVID going on, but um, I, I still love it. I, I love being around the kids. I love being around the players. It's fun for me. It's a passion that I've always had. Uh, stay in the game. And uh, like I said, help, help people get to where they want to go. And hopefully I'm doing that. I, I know I've, I've helped some players in the past, and I want to do that in the future here too. So, But ultimately, it's about winning championships, and that we're, that's what we're looking forward, uh, hopefully looking forward to here in St. John. Um Great organization, great people, great assistant coaches. I, I coached both of them. I coached uh, Jeff Cowan in Calgary when I was coaching with the Flames, and I coached uh, Stephen Legion in, in Mississauga when I was coaching the Ice Dogs in the Ontario League. So I know them both well. They're both great people, hard workers, and I uh, love them to death. And uh, now it's up to us to get the job done here. And then playing for such you know two legendary coaches, what are the biggest takeaways you take from them and your coaching now? Just just setting the demands and staying with them. Also, treating people uh, not only as a team but as individuals. Um, you know, I I think both of them really created great relationships with their players, and, and some obviously were rocky, but some were, were very good, and, and I'd say the majority were very good. So, I think I think you know the X's and O's is one thing, but but I think uh, learning from them on how to create those relationships uh, with the players as individuals, and how to get them to understand, how to get your players. To understand that you're there to help them and you're not there to keep your thumb on them or, or critique them all the time or put them down. You're there to make them the best players that they can be on and off the ice. And, uh, I think that's probably one of the biggest things I, I took from both those gentlemen. Uh, great coaches and uh, I learned a lot from them. Well, Greg, thank you so much for your time today and hopefully your season uh, gets started back up and you can finish. Well, thanks so much, Kyle, for having me. It's uh, a lot of fun and uh, I greatly appreciate you coming. Thank you again to Greg Gilbert for joining us this week. It was really cool to hear some behind-the-scenes stories about the 94 Cup team, as well as hear some funny stories about Iron Mike Keenan. We wish this team, the St. John Sea Dogs, all the best this year, and hopefully they can resume their season soon. And that does it for Episode 8 of the Broadway Hat Podcast. Please hit the follow button on Spotify. You can now follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, so please subscribe and leave a five-star review. You can also follow me on Twitter at KHallNY for all New York Ranger updates and follow the Broadway Hat Podcast Instagram account to be notified when new episodes come out. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here.